when people come to church, we recognize that people come for different reasons. Uh, some of us, we wake up and we go, man, it's Sunday morning. I get to go to church. I can't wait to go to church. I'm going to sing some songs. We're going to hear from the word. I'm going to see a lot of people that I know. And, and you just can't wait to get, you, like you show up early for church, which is kind of rare in our congregation. Um, and, and so like you guys are like the, the human golden retrievers. They're like, you're just excited about everything. But then there's some who are like, it's Sunday morning. I go to church on Sundays. Like, this is what I do every Sunday. I don't go, what am I going to do this Sunday morning? I'm going to be in church. This is what I, I do. And like, the fact that you lost an hour's sleep, you weren't even going, hmm, maybe I should just skip this one. I'll just sleep a little bit extra. No, you're like, if I don't go to church, it's going to mess up my whole week. That's, that's like the anchor for my week. Now, you guys are my people. That, that, that's who I am. It's like, there, I, I missed a service or a Sunday a while back. And I was like, what day is it? It just messed me up. Now, some of us, we wake up and it's like, it's Sunday. Haven't been to church in a few weeks. Uh, haven't been there actually in a while. Maybe I, I better go make an appearance because if I don't, Pastor Greg is going to start calling and being like, where are you at? I just, I don't want him to worry about me. So you, you've made kind of an appearance. Um, some of us were here as like a gift or a favor to a friend or somebody. It's like, they, they just won't get off your back. They're just like, come to church with me, come to church. And like, you're like, okay, I'll do it. I'll, I'll come with you. And, and you show up and that's why you're here. Now, some of you would say, it's not so much a gift as I'm a hostage. Um, my, my, my spouse or my, my parents are making me be here. Like, I don't want to be here, but I, I'm here just to keep the peace, keep them off my back. That's why I'm here. And then there's some of us, we're here because we're, we're hurting. We're looking for hope. We're looking for healing. We're hoping that, that, that maybe this Jesus guy that we've heard about, maybe there's something to him. Now, for whatever reason you find yourself here, we're glad that you're here. And I'm hoping that over the next little bit, you're going to see why, why God wants you here. And that maybe why God has you here this morning. Now, we're in the midst of a series in which we're looking at the life of Jesus as it leads up to the cross. And uh, what we found is Jesus has come into Jerusalem and he's been teaching in the temple. He's been teaching crowds, but he's gotten it going toe to toe with the Jewish religious leaders. And he's, he's, he's kind of in their face. He's going like, I am the son of God. He claims divine authority. And he, he teaches some things that contradict with what they teach. And, and he's, he's going like, you guys need to repent. He's issuing warnings. Now, how does this go over with these guys? Well, it's not going over super great. Luke chapter 22, verse 1. It says, the festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Now, the book of Exodus, it opens up with Pharaoh has enslaved God's people, the Israelites, and they cry out to God, please deliver us. And God hears their cry, and he, he sends uh, Moses to kind of be the instrument of divine power. And so Moses goes before Pharaoh. He's like, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's kind of like, that's a good one. I'm not going to do that. Because if I do that, that's going to mess everything up. Think about the economy, how bad that's going to be. If like millions and millions of slaves just exit. So like Pharaoh's like, no. And so God starts to issue some warnings through the plagues and they kind of intensify in, in, in their intensity over time. Now it, it gets to this point where, where Moses, he goes and he warns Pharaoh about this last one, that the firstborn son of every family will die. And, and God 
warns the Israelites, like, okay, if you do not want this to happen to you, here's what you need to do. You need to sacrifice a lamb, take its blood, and paint your doorposts. And then when the angel of death passes over the land, he'll see that, and he'll pass over your house. And so this is what they do in faith, and that's what happens. And then uh, Pharaoh, he, after this, he relents, and the Israelites are released from slavery. And 15 centuries later, the Jewish people are still commemorating their deliverance by celebrating the Passover festival every year. And so the Passover is, is this big deal, that if you were a Jewish male, you would bring your family, if you could, to Jerusalem to celebrate the holiday. 2.7 million people, it's estimated, at the time of Jesus, would make their way into Jerusalem for this festival. And so at this time, the religious leaders, they've already decided what to do with Jesus. We're going to kill him. But the question is, how do we do this? Because many of the people who are there in the city to celebrate the Passover are fans of Jesus. They, they like this guy. And so if the religious leaders just kind of bring a force and they're like, okay, Jesus, um, you're under arrest, the people could actually rise up and be like, no, you don't. And there could be a violent revolt. And if that breaks out, that's when Rome comes in and it's like, okay, Jewish religious authorities, you had your chance, you messed it up, and they take authority. So they're like, we've got to be careful about this. And they're looking for their moment, their opportunity. And so in comes the man that I don't think anybody has ever named a child after, Judas Iscariot. Like, has, has anybody ever met a Judas? I, I haven't. And so Luke chapter 22, verse 3, it says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and the temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver, so he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus to them when the crowd was not present. Now, we can only suspect Judas's motive. Um, obviously, money kind of came in there, but, but all of a sudden, Judas kind of changes teams, and he agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which it sounds like a lot of money, but it's not really that much money. It's about four months wages. Like, are you going to hand somebody over pretty much for, to death for that much money? Now, Judas, because he's a part of Jesus' group, he's, he's able to tell the chief priests where they can find Jesus when there's not going to be a lot of people present. And so Judas, he, he waits and he schemes for his moment. And so verse 7 of Luke 22 it says, then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him, listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where's the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, in our culture, the holiday that we kind of tend to make the biggest deal about is Christmas. Uh, we, we spend months preparing. So we, we decorate the house inside and out. Maybe we do some baking. We, make the, uh, we, we write cards. We wrap the presents after we've purchased them. We get everything right. We, we prepare for it. And so the Passover was similar for the Jewish people. Um, they would spend a lot of time preparing for this holiday. 
And on the day of Passover, the Jewish people, they would gather as, as family groups or, or friend groups, and they would um, share a meal around a table. And this meal has specific props. There's kind of a, a specific script that they've got to work through. And so one of the things on that table is unleavened bread. It's just this reminder. Remember when you came out of Egypt? It was so quick. You didn't have time to let the bread rise before you baked it. You had to bake it before it was, it was risen bread. Then there's the lamb that just kind of reminds them of like, here's how you were delivered by the hand of God. And you, you painted your doorpost and, and God passed over and brought you out. And then you also have uh, bitter herbs that are dipped in a special sauce. And it's just this reminder of the bitter slavery that they had experienced in, Israel, or in Egypt and God had brought them out of. And so you, you have this table and it's kind of this storyboard that every element you look at on that table kind of tells a, 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 a specific part of the story. It reminds you of things. It's embedded with meaning. And so Jesus sends Peter and John, they go make the final preparations and they're told, look for a man who's carrying a jug of water and he's going to lead you to where you're gonna eat the Passover meal. And, and for like, that, that doesn't sound like much to us, but at this time, the, the carrying of a jug of water, that, that was the work that was kind of left for the women. Maybe they were stronger than the men, I don't know. But they're, they're to look for this man and this man's going to be looking for them. And when they see him, he's just going to kind of lead them to the house where they're going to celebrate the Passover. And it seems like Jesus has, has made some previous arrangements with the owner of the house. And we're going, Jesus kind of seems to be a bit mysterious, a bit secretive here. And he, he's doing it intentionally. Like he, he wants some privacy here and probably for a few reasons. One is, again, a lot of people like Jesus. He's probably like one of the most popular rabbis in town at this moment, he's gaining fame. And so they don't need somebody like stopping by while they're having the Passover going like, I, I, sorry, I just, I was wondering, can Jesus come to the door? Got some questions for him. Maybe we can get a selfie together. Uh, get, get an autograph at least. Like he doesn't need people interrupting this meal, but it's also this. If he says where they're going to eat the Passover meal ahead of time, Judas is gonna be able to tell the chief priests where Jesus is going to be, and they could come arrest him at that time. And so Jesus has plans for the Passover meal, and he wants to make sure that it doesn't get interrupted. So continuing in Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. Now, I don't think this is a spoiler for anybody. We kind of just sang about it, but it's like, Jesus dies. Um, this is where this is leading to, that he's, he's going to be crucified on a cross at the hands of the Romans, but really from pressure by the Jewish religious leaders. And in this moment, you're going, oh, it looks like the Jewish religious leaders won. And it looks like in the background, Satan's operating there. It looks like, okay, Satan's won. He, he's, he's, he's killed the savior of the world. And what we can, we can do is we look at the cross of Christ and the life of Christ to go, man, it's too bad it ended so short. It's too bad that he, he died when he was kind of in his prime, 
Like imagine if he got to live out his full life. Think of the things he would have taught. Think of the miracles he would have done. Think of the lives he would have impacted. And we look at the cross and we might think, you know what, Jesus was surprised by it. That it was an interruption to God's plan, but that he, he just kind of went with it. That he kind of worked with it. But Jesus was not surprised by his death. That, that when he's hanging on the cross, he's not going, man, I did not see it going this way. He's not going, this was unexpected. Like he, he talks about it throughout the gospel. Psalm 22, if you read that, it's like it describes what's happening to Jesus 600 years before he walks the earth. Now Jesus also knows who Judas is. In John chapter 6, verse 70, it says, Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. It's like, I imagine like for, for Judas, you're like, just keep your head low. Don't say anything. Be cool. Um, now Jesus knows what is coming. In verse 15, he's going, I- I'm going to, to suffer. But he also knows why he is going to suffer. Like the, the Jewish religious leaders are like, we're going to make him suffer. We're going to kill him to shut this guy up. But God's going, you know what? I'm going to use his death to open up the gates of heaven, to open up the kingdom of God. And so notice what Jesus is, is doing. He, he knows his death on the cross is coming, but that's not going to be the end of the story. He speaks of a kingdom that's going to come, and he, he goes, I'm going to be there. I'm going to make it to that kingdom. And so in, in this moment, Jesus gives his disciples a new meal. He gives them a simple commemorative meal similar to the Passover whose elements are kind of embedded with symbolic meaning that are going to remind us of what Christ has done. And so in Luke chapter 22, it says, he he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then it says that he he took a cup after supper and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now Jesus, he he speaks of, of a new covenant that's coming, which, I mean, it implies that there's an old covenant that's, that's currently existing. Now, pretty much all of God's relationships with humanity involved covenants. Um, in a covenant, God makes promises and asks people to fulfill certain commitments, the, the, the purpose of which is to accomplish a common goal. And so there's, there's commitments, there's obligations in the covenant, but a covenant is more than a contract because a covenant, it's personal, it's relational. So for, for, for those who got, who've been married or who've gotten married, you, you're not like signing a contract or entering into a contract when you get married. What you're entering is a covenant that a husband and a wife choose to enter formal relationship with one another. They're, they're going, we're, we're going to be together for life. We're going to be faithful together. And then they, they, they pursue common goals. So it's like, as, as, as the man's proposing, it's like, we're, we're going to do this together. We're, we're going to have a life together. We're going to raise kids together. We're going to have a YouTube channel together. And we're going to become influencers. Like, maybe you have this beautiful vision of what you're going to accomplish together as a couple. But in Luke chapter 22, Jesus is alluding to the covenant that God has made with Israel. And so in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, 
It says, Moses then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. The people responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. And so God gives the people of Israel after he brings them out of slavery, um, the the law. And he's like, I'm going to make you into my people. And he covenants with them and he promises, here's, here's blessings that are going to come your way if you, you are faithful to the covenant obligations. But there's also curses if you don't commit to following these covenant obligations, to keeping the commands. And so you see that part where it says that God, or Moses sprinkles the people with blood. And we're going like, that's, that's messy. That's gross. But what that was doing, it was like, this is how covenants were often ratified with, was with the sacrifice and with, with blood. And it showed you how serious this was. Now, the problem Israel experienced is that they could not keep the covenant obligations or would not keep the covenant obligations. You see that they would constantly worship other gods that they would allow injustices to kind of continue amongst their midst. And if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you kind of see this this cycle that happens where it's like the people are good with God, but then they fall away, worship other gods, things aren't going well. God brings in a judge or a prophet. The people come back to God. It's like, okay, we're good. And then what happens again? They start worshiping other gods and God brings in a prophet or a judge. But this keeps going until the time of David, where it's eventually God, just like, you're going to lose your land. The people go into exile. And for generations, Israel's ignored the terms of their covenant with God. They break the commands. They live by their own definitions of good and evil. Now we have to understand that the problem is not God's law. The problem is with humanity. Like, I think most of us would agree that evil exists in this world. Like, we might have different definitions and understanding what, what evil is, but for the most part, like, somebody looks at somebody going in and, and, and shooting up a school, and you don't go, I'm kind of neutral on that one. Like, no, we go, that, that is evil. That is wrong, and there's a lot of things we can look at in this world and just go, man, that, that, that is plain evil. And I think everybody also agrees that it's God's responsibility to deal with the evil. Like, if you're a skeptic, maybe you're an atheist, maybe an argument you've made against God is this. Like, if God is a good God, he should deal with the evil in the world. Like, it's his job. Why isn't he getting rid of it? And that you might go, that's the reason I don't believe. Now, as Christians, we see that evil as well. We acknowledge it and we pray, we go, God, don't you see this injustice? Don't you see that wrong? And we ask him, would you please do something about it? And God goes, I'm going to. But the problem is this. Removing evil from the world is not like removing an object from a room. It's not like picking up a piece of furniture and taking it out of a room. The problem about ev- with evil is that it's committed. It's carried out by human beings. It's perpetrated by by human beings, by by myself, by you, by others. Now you might go, okay, but I'm good. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not evil. But like we we've done this before here. That we we run the Ten Commandments kind of like as a little bit of a test. It's like, um, have you lied? Guilty. Have you coveted what somebody else has? 
Yeah. Have you been jealous of other people? Yeah. Have you been angry towards somebody to the point where you're like, you hate them? Basically, you wish that they did not exist. Have you failed to honor your parents? Have you looked lustfully at a man or a woman who is not your spouse? It's like all of us guilty. Now, maybe you're going, well, that's, that's Bible stuff. That's not for me. Um, but you know you do things that you shouldn't do, that you disappoint yourself constantly. Like, here's the thing. It's like, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you go, what's wrong with you? But then you do it, and you're like, ugh, okay, you're guilty of something that you think is wrong. Are you guilty of gossiping? Nobody really likes a gossip. We, we could keep going that we fail to live up to our own definitions of what we think is good. Now, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it tells us that we've all sinned. In other words, we've, we've all committed evil. We're, we're all guilty of this. And so if we're going like, okay, God, it's your job to deal with the evil. God's like, okay, I'm going to. But if he's going to do this, he's got to deal with the people who perform it. And so Romans 3.23 is like, you're all guilty of evil. Romans chapter 6.23 is like, okay, we got to deal with the perpetrators of it. It says this, for the wages of sin is death. What you get for committing evil is death. This is how God kind of deals with evil in his creation. He takes out the ones who are guilty of committing it. And at that point, we're going, okay, maybe we can live to li- learn to live with this. Like, maybe, I don't really want to be taken out. And God's like, I don't want to take you out either. And so this is why God allowed animal sacrifices. It was part of it to be a substitute for people in the Jewish sacrificial system. That the animal died symbolically in your place. It was designed to restore relationship between God and man. But the problem with that system is that you were never done. Like you'd offer your sacrifice, I'm good with God, but then before long you find that you're back for like more, more times than you can count because you failed to carry out the law. You failed to live perfectly. You've, you've sinned, you've committed evil. And so like think of it this way. Um, we wear clothes. They get dirty. We take them off. We throw them into the laundry basket. And you're walking by, the laundry basket is full, you pick it up, you take it down to the washing machine, you run it through, you dry it, you fold it, you put it away, you're like, there, the laundry's done. But then, like, as you're walking back from putting the clothes away, you're going, how is the laundry basket half full again? Like, why? I I just did laundry. And it's like, as quick as you can do that laundry, it's piling back up. It's a never-ending cycle. As much as you wash it, it will continue to pile up. And this is the way that it was with people's sin. It's like that they would commit evil. They would commit treason against God. And the sacrifices would continue to be made. But as long as those sacrifices were being made, those, those sins, their, their moral fail, failures, they were just continuing to pile up as well. And so the people are trapped in a relentless cycle of sin and sacrifice. And that would become spiritually exhausting because you're, you're going like, am I actually good with God? Did, did, was that sacrifice enough to deal with this sin? What if something happens before I get to sacrifice for these sins? Like, what's God going to do with me? And can you understand how exhausting that would be? Now, in the midst of the people's rebellion and exile, the Hebrew prophets, they speak of a new covenant 
Jeremiah 31, <clears throat> 31 and following, it says, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and they will not need to teach their neighbors nor will they need to teach their relatives saying you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already says the Lord. And here's the beautiful part. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. And so if, if you're an Israelite, you hear this promise, you're going to go, that, that would be awesome. That God is not going to remember my sins. That God's going to forgive my wickedness. That, that all this stuff with the old covenant, that's, that's not going to be the way we live anymore. But that was a future promise, that they were still living under the old covenant. But then one day, Jesus arrives on the scene. And John the Baptist, his, his cousin, what does he say of him? He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, in Matthew's account of it, Jesus says that his blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, for Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed so when it comes to God's law, here's what Jesus was able to do. He was able to fulfill it perfectly at every point where humanity had failed. And since Jesus lived a sinless life but died a sinner's death on the cross, God is able to take Christ's work on the cross, what he has accomplished, and he's able to take and credit it to those who would believe in him by faith, that they would trust in his work. And now God's wrath for sin can pass over those who've put their faith in Christ and trusted in him. And by his death, a new covenant is made in place of the old. And so in this meal, Jesus is inaugurating a new period in salvation history. And he attaches this meal to it so we can continuously reflect on what it is that he has done. Now we, we recall this meal every Sunday here at Halifax Christian Church. Um, and it goes by many different names. Uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the Last Supper, the Breaking of Bread, the Eucharist. And I'll admit this last one just makes me feel a little uncomfortable for some reason, but they call it the Love Feast. Uh, just kind of weird to me. Um, but this meal has been celebrated by pretty much every church throughout all church history. And is one of the things that Christians have fought the most about throughout church history. Like people have died arguing about this meal. And around questions is like, okay, when do we take it? How often do we take it? Who can take it? What, what can we use? What, what's actually taking place when we celebrate this meal? Again, a lot of, of fighting. Now this expression, this is my body, that's been open to a lot of different uh, interpretations. I remember taking a church history class and one of the things that stood out to me was this, that the early church was believed to be cannibals or people accused the Christians of being cannibals because they ate the body and drank the blood of Christ. It was kind of just a, a misunderstanding. But there are some circles in, in churches in which 
They understand the phrase literally and claim that the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ. And I would go, I think we've got to be careful with that one because Jesus would often use figures of speech and metaphor in his teaching. That, that he would go like, I'm the vine. I'm the door. I am a shepherd. I am the light. And, and we, we look at those and don't go, okay, Jesus is a door. Like we, we understand, no, he's, he's using figurative language. He's using metaphors here. Now, many Christians believe that the body and blood of Christ are not literally physically or really present, but that Christ is present symbolically in these elements. But every Christian, I would say, would agree that Christ is present spiritually with and in the believing recipients of, of, of the cup and the bread. So that as we celebrate this meal, what we, we have to understand that like Christ is in us. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, where he says, like, I'm, surely I'm with you to the end of the age. That he's in us. He's with us as, as we do this. Now, we're, we're not really going to kind of get into the language of all of this stuff, but here's, here's what I'm saying. We, we need to make sure we don't treat this memorial meal as something that's, that's trivial or insignificant. Like th- this, this is something more significant than just like a little snack that's going to hold you over till lunch. It's more than like coming and, and like our little sample cups going like, these are like samples from Costco. Like we should not treat it that way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's a warning not to take the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. And then like Paul talks about like some Christians are dying and falling ill because they take it in an unworthy manner, that they don't approach it with the reverence that it deserves. And so I don't know, like there's a lot of different interpretations, what you do with that, but it's kind of going like, man, don't approach this meal lightly or treat it as something that's insignificant. There's something powerful here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so what we see here, at the, at the very least, this meal is a time for believers to reflect on Jesus' death, but also we're proclaiming it till he comes again. So we're looking forward to his return, but it's also this time for us to reflect on our own relationship with Christ. And so as we, as we eat the bread, it reminds us of the incarnation, that, that God became man. He put on flesh. He became one of us, that he lived amongst us, and his body went to the cross. He gave his life for us. And so it's, it's kind of this, that, that, that Jesus doesn't die simply as a martyr for some idea. He, he dies as a savior. He accomplishes something on the cross. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says, but he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Now the cup, this is the cup of the new covenant, Jesus says. He offers himself as a sacrifice for sin, that his blood is poured out so God's wrath would not be poured out on us. And in instituting this memorial meal, here's, here's what Jesus is saying to us. That by my life and by my death, I have made possible a new relationship between you and God. You are sinners, it is true. But because I died for you, God is no longer your enemy. 
He is your father. He is your friend. He is for you. And because of that, we get to look forward to the kingdom of God where we're going to be with him. Like a few weeks ago, I was, I was making supper and I was cutting up parsnips for, for part of our meal. And when I smelled the parsnips, I was reminded of my grandmother. And it's not because my grandmother smelled like parsnips, um, but it was just this. Like we, we would often have parsnips at their house. And that, when I take a bite of it, I'm just like brought back to family meals at my grandparents' house. And I can see everybody around the table. Like I, I, it's like my dad is across from me. My brothers are on the other side, the, my next brother. So it's like we're separated, so we're not fighting. Grampy's to my left. My grandmother's at the other end of the table. My sister, like I see the whole thing. And food can elicit strong memories. And the Lord's Supper is intended to remind us of Jesus And in the rush of life, here's what I know because I've experienced it. We can forget about the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. But the bread and the cup, they remind us of the cross. And when we gather together and we eat this meal, we're reminded of what Hebrews 10, 14 says, that with one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And that's, that's a beautiful verse. It's not saying like made perfect. It's not saying you're sinless already. But what it's kind of saying is that, that his righteousness has been given to you and God looks at you and he sees you in the same way that he sees his son. And being made holy is talking about sanctification, that God gives his spirit to you and he's making you over time into the person that he already sees you as. Now, I don't know how you came in this morning Maybe this week was great. You're like, man, my life is great. I have no complaints and things are awesome. But maybe you came in and it's like, man, it's been a brutal week. Just kind of put on the end of a brutal season and you're hurting and you're looking for hope. And what I've noticed is that when things are good, we tend to downplay our need for grace. We, we, we go, you know, I've got my life together. I've got my act together. I, I'm pretty good. I think God will be impressed with how I'm doing right now. But the Lord's Supper reminds us, you know what? You still need a savior. It reminds us, you have not always had your act together. And if you think you've got your act together, it's reminding you, you've probably got some hidden things, some things going on that you're blind to that you need God's grace to. And you're going, no, I don't think it is. Well, pride is probably your issue. This, this meal, it humbles us. It keeps us from looking down on others with any sense of superiority that there's going to be no cause for bragging in heaven because we get there the same way. Christ's blood shed on the cross. But some of us come in here struggling. We're feeling unloved. We're feeling unwanted. We've put labels on ourselves or people have put labels on us and we we feel like a failure, a loser, a liar, a uh, a cheater, a thief, a fraud. I mean, I I could keep going with the things But this meal reminds us, that's not how God sees you. That when he looks at you, he sees you the same way he sees his son. It's a reminder that God's grace is there to meet all your sin. It's there to meet all your failures. And that you will never out-sin the cross of Christ. His grace does not run out. And so the Lord's Supper reminds us to get our eyes off of ourselves and on to Christ. So at this time, I want to invite the band to come back up. And if you've been asked to serve communion, I want to ask you to go to the back to get ready. 
But here again, we, we need to be reminded of this because what we do is we make up laws for ourselves and we go, you know what? If I do a good enough job, I'm going to deserve blessing or reward. And both Christians and non-Christians, we can do this. We begin to believe in our own efforts. We go, if I'm, if I'm good enough, if I'm spiritual enough, if I'm religious enough, if I'm moral enough, then, then I'll, I'll be saved, I'll be good. We believe that our church attendance, our Bible reading streaks, our volunteering, our charitable giving, our abstinence from whatever we decide is sinful, whether it be sex or, or alcohol or, or drugs or tattoos or gambling, like we could fill it in. We're going, because I don't do these things, God's gonna be impressed with me. But if you were a Christian and you live that way, you're probably plagued with anxiety. You're probably fearful that for any moment that God could take you out of his grace and put you under his wrath. And if you aren't a Christian, man, you just live with uncertainty. You're just kind of like hoping, I hope this works out, but like, do you really want to approach eternity in the same way you approach a sporting event going like, I hope I'm on the winning team. I hope, I hope it all works out. Like Jesus is going, there's a new covenant. And he's saying, step off the treadmill of religious work. Stop trusting in your own efforts and those things that, that trying to perform, it just wears you out, leaves you stressed, it leaves you anxious. He's going, you can, you can trust in what you do or what you don't do, but it's not gonna work out for you, but you can trust in what I have done. And so what do you have to do to experience that forgiveness and rest? Jesus simply says, trust me. Put your faith in my work, not in your own. And if this is something you've never heard before, um, you've, you haven't accepted the, the gospel, you aren't trusting Christ's work, we open that invitation to you every week. You can speak to me, you can speak to, to Greg or another leader afterwards. But from the first Lord's Supper until the end of history, th this meal is meant to point the church towards the cross and to remind us that, that the cross wasn't an accident. The cross was not some thing that was misfortunate, but that, that it is the crowning event of human redemption. And so in this time, the team's going to lead us in a song and the, the servers are gonna come serve. And I'm gonna actually ask you to do something a bit different. Usually we, we stand at this point, but I want you to stay seated and you can sing along or I, I just want you to reflect even on the words. And if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, as, as the communion has passed, hold on to the bread and the cup and we're gonna take these together. But I just wanna give us this time to remember. Like some of us have forgotten about what Christ has done for us. And I wanna give you a few moments to rest in what Christ has done for us, to, to stop trusting in what you do and to trust in what he has done. And so after the band has done that, and we've, we've looked at, uh, sang this song, we'll take it together. But just remember that by Jesus' sacrifice, You've been made perfect forever. That God sees you the same way he sees his son.